the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Greetings and welcome, everyone, to this episode of Aviation TV's Connected. I'm your host, David Danto, and uh, we've uh, we we pretty much uh, uh, beat the the heck out of uh, uh, CES 2022 over the last couple of episodes, and it was a good show, and we did a lot of things. But now that now that CES, or what used to be called the Consumer Electronics Show, is in our rearview mirror, um, I wanted to have a discussion uh, about with, uh, with 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 an industry expert, a friend of mine, about what's going on with the blurred lines. What's consumer? What's enterprise? Um, what's home office, what's office, what's, you know, all these things are kind of blending and merging together and it's got a lot of interesting ramifications we might not have considered. So, so my guess for the show is something I can't say very often is a fellow fellow. Um, <laughs> we're both, um, uh, we're, we're both appointed uh, during Infocom uh, many years ago as an IMCCA Emerging Technology Fellow. Uh, Paul Erickson, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody where you work and what you do. Yep. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Erickson. I'm a research director for entertainment and CE at, at Parks Associates. And I've spent uh, many years in the market intelligence and market research business, uh, formerly worked with uh, Omdia and IHS Market, and uh, for years uh, as part of being with IHS Market and their team uh, helped uh, Avixa with many of their pro-AV related forecasts. So I've, I've had the benefit over uh, 16 years in the analyst business of working both in the consumer side of technology, especially consumer facing AV, home AV, personal tech and so on. And of course the pro AV side, right? So I've been to uh, CES, IFA, uh, some of these other consumer electronics conferences almost as much now as I've been to uh, Infocom, ISC and a lot of the other conferences on the pro AV side. So it's been very interesting working uh, on both consumer entertainment gear as well as collaboration gear and pro AV and now being in a position where thanks to the pandemic, we're seeing, as David mentioned, a lot of these lines kind of blurring when it comes to productivity and working from home. And what does it mean to have pro versus consumer uh, gear? And what does it mean for to, to engage in collaboration? What are you using to collaborate with? So you know, those lines are kind of blurred where it's prosumer or is it consumer pro gear? You know, what is it now? So it, it's an interesting time to see. Well, let's 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 do a little bit of a preface for a second. You know, this is my um, fourth decade trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, <laughs> and, and, and early on in my broadcast days, the difference between the technology device and the pro technology device was that four cent pro label. That was the only difference. There wasn't, you know, you could make an argument that some manufacturers had better power supplies for their pro line as opposed to their consumer line. That was true in some cases, but for the most part, it was just branding. It wasn't right. really a difference between the, you know, maybe a different shell, a different outside. There wasn't really much of a difference. So this, this, this idea of what is consumer versus what is professional, that's been around for at least, you know, 20, 30 years or so, I, I would assume. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Okay, so so what we did, and as you mentioned, um, with the pandemic, without getting too much into you know the horrors of everything that that's gone on and is still going on, um, as you can hear in my voice, um, the uh, the 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 we we poured some gasoline on the fire. We re, the pandemic was a technology accelerant. 
yes. it didn't make anything happen in my opinion anyway and correct me because you know please your opinion you know is why you're here um it didn't make anything happen that wasn't already going to happen it just made it happen a lot faster right it made people realize that you know what all the naysaying about uh remote work was was all poppycock that it was really people can stay in business and be alert and be adults when they're not in the office they can communicate over video God, I remember in the early, you know, the late 1990s, we were talking about video as the new voice. And, you know, guess what? Now it is. You know, there, is, there, are, is. there are no calls with any. So, so, I mean, would you agree? I mean, even uh, Microsoft CEOs said, you know, like uh, the, the two months of digital, two years of digital transformation in two months, and people have been extrapolating that, you know, four years and four months, eight years and eight months. The, we, we've, we've, we, we hit the accelerator. We haven't let up yet. Uh, is that a fair um, um, uh, take on what's going on in the technology space right now? I would say so. I mean, I think uh, we, we still haven't seen the full ramifications of it yet, right? I mean, because we have um, certain industries that, you know, reluctantly have begun to really, really uh, dig into being remote, right? And what that means. And it's not, they realize now that it's not this, this temporary thing that people are going to get over, right? So you had a lot of these industries that are very, very strong holdovers, uh, especially investment banking. I think it was Morgan Stanley and a few others that virtually gave their employees, uh, CEOs, that they need to be back in the office by a certain date. And they've moved those uh, goalposts several times now. And, uh, you know, Omicron's had a role in that as well. But now they're realizing that, uh, well, they need to push it back again. And, you know, it's now six months past when they first said it was that drop dead deadline that uh, employees have to be back in the office because our company is built on office work. And yet the company has not failed with this lack of, you know, in office work. And so you, you have the full ramifications of it socially and employment wise still panning out. But I think at the most uh, fundamental level, we've already seen that people, I mean, companies that have held off on each or that either that cultural change that technological change that functional change and how they conduct business every day they were drop kicked into having to do it to survive right and, and as you mentioned they many have discovered or most if not all have discovered that okay well actually um this can work mostly remote and you know it's it's crazy to think of how much has changed besides just that um location-based factor, right? People can't come into the office anymore because of quarantines and lockdowns and, um, you know, because of just epidemiological common sense. Now it's it's become something where uh, we're seeing changes in just the fabric of what it means to work in this U.S., you know, where I think in Europe, the idea of a work uh, work-life balance well, it was a real thing. And here, it was never a real thing for certain industries, right? You you took it for granted that basically you had to pour in 70 to, hour, 70 to 80 hour weeks, you know, or if not more in investment banking to really make it, right? And that was the definition of the job. And now I think a lot of companies have realized that now that people have been exposed to actually spending time at home, to actually making things work with splitting time at home, uh, whether that's contributed to the great resignation, so to speak, or not, uh, I, I think we've just begun to see how the definition of work has changed. I think for, for our purposes on this uh, on this webcast uh, or this uh, podcast, you know, certainly we see a lot of that filtering down into what companies are designing and making and pitching to the new is it consumer, home worker, 
uh, enterprise worker, everybody is somewhat blended now in what, what they're doing uh, location-wise and consideration-wise. So uh, I, I think that it's been a good kick into the business sector to force them to, to innovate. And also to some degree to the consumer electronics companies and the pro AV companies and the collaboration companies, it's been a kick in the pants there where now they've had the design for considerations that weren't necessarily uh, hardcore considerations for them before. So, so help us pull back to a 30,000 foot view to, 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 to really look at how these dominoes are going to fall one after another. It's part of a blog that I wrote a year ago about how everything's going to happen with everything else. If, if people are realizing that they can work remotely successfully, um, they don't have to be at home all the time, but right. the point is they don't have to be commuting to the office all the time. Right. What impact is that going to have on the technology manufacturers? What impact is that going to have on real estate, on cities, on what houses or apartments I choose to get for myself is the consideration of whether or not there's space uh, to have a place to go. Now something that I'm going to consider if I can afford it. Obviously, there's privilege involved in this as well. But right. how, how do you see these things impacting on each other as, as culture changes because of all of this? Wow, I mean, there's a lot of interrelated things there. Uh, one, let me let me start from let's say from the from the office outward. Uh, you know, the, the nature of commercial real estate has changed a lot, right? As far as the amount of office space that companies need, uh, you know, the amount of existing office space that's being taken, companies are evaluating whether this is a good use of real estate budget uh, or budget in general, and you know, can can we have a much uh smaller space not just in this location but across the enterprise uh smaller you know smaller locations in general because our average occupancies are that much lower right are we but paying it's, for it's not just smaller it's also repurposed right the, the right if you are going to go in you're not going to go in to sit at a desk you're going right. to go open in floor to plan desk yeah right. i mean you might you might have less need of an open floor plan desk without getting too much into the debate of uh, open floor plans uh you know, there are still some things you might get done more efficiently in an office, but especially face-to-face -face collaboration, you know, the, those huddle rooms and those smaller meeting rooms are now even greater importance. Uh, but do you need the open floor plan capacity to have 80% of your workforce in? That's just not realistic anymore. Uh, so, yeah, the, the configuration of that workspace has changed. Uh, if we think about commuting, you know, the real estate markets have have uh, broadened somewhat where people don't need to be within commuting distance of work per se if they only have to go into work only a few times a month, right? So then they might be okay with living an hour away or, or something else. So you're not necessarily bound to the cost structure of living close to that city, that workplace, that area. Uh, you have employers now considering uh, compensation Right, whether they should be paying people less, unfortunately, uh, because they're not necessarily coming into the office every day. Uh, there, there's just so many interrelated things. I think uh, when we think about conference rooms, right, or we think about collaboration spaces, you know, there's less of a market now for, or, or it's a more challenged market now for a lot of the enterprise uh, collaboration vendors that were used to selling uh, lots and lots of. Uh, ceiling, you know, beamforming microphones and lots of, you know, uh, uh, boundary microphones and things for these larger meeting spaces. 
and now looking more towards you know all-in-one units that can be fit into a smaller room that have a bit more intelligence where they can you know do electronic ptz to focus in on the speaker and so forth without needing a more elaborate like actual ptz type setup uh it, you know and it's crazy microsoft is going through that whole program now with teams where they're letting you trade in all your old legacy conferencing equipment for cash value obviously for them they wanted uh, to do it to encourage uh publicity for teams but also it speaks to how much companies are finding themselves with excess conferencing gear and collaboration gear that they just don't use anymore well, it's also, you know, when you used to buy that gear in an enterprise environment, you know, you would amortize it, you know, 10 years, seven years, five right. years. And we're at a point now, we're like in an 18 to 24 month cycle right. where the, the technology is coming out is so far better than what was out there before that, that, that rooms become obsolete very quickly, systems become obsolete very quickly. And the stuff you buy today is easier to put in, less expensive, more powerful and smarter. So right. it's 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 really an amazing cycle where people who haven't started upgrading and taking advantage of changing the floor plans in their offices really need to kind of get off the stick and do it now because the opportunities are amazing. Yeah, and and you think about the uh, just the infrastructure they used to to have to put in, you know, cabling wise and so on, and now that you know you've got better and better implementations of uh, of Wi-Fi, secure Wi-Fi within the floor plan. Uh, literally, these things you can move around. You know these smart sound bars with uh, cameras and so on, and and really intelligent beamforming microphones. It's not too hard to pick them up and move them from space to space, either, right? So you you have flexibility in what you're doing now, and it's uh, like I said, it's kind of hard to really encapsulate all the changes, every single touch point that uh, you know the pandemic and related uh, changes have brought on when it comes to collaboration and AV in the enterprise. I mean, it's just incredible. Well, let's, uh, let's we have, focus. We haven't seen the end of it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Let's focus, like we said for a second before at the tail end of the other one, on, on, on the home side of things, which is, you know, the pandemic started. It was, you know, stay home, flatten the curve, grab whatever you had. A lot of people putting in their consumer earbuds and holding up a tablet or using the built-in cameras. And, and right. the quality and reliability wasn't there. It was right. fine for a temporary quick fix. But now you've got people realizing, look, if I'm going to be spending 60, 70, 80% of my time working from a home office, my clients, my colleagues need to see me better. I need more reliable gear. This needs to work better. And, and again, it's those dominoes. It's like it's not enough that I get a better camera and a better microphone or a better headset. Now I need to have a better place to put it because I want a place to go. I can't right. just be sitting in the spare bedroom or on the kitchen table to do this. And again, that impact on where I live, since I don't have to be so close to the office, maybe I can get you know a bigger apartment or a bigger house a little further out and have a dedicated office. And if I'm selling my house, that becomes a great selling point going forward. A lot of this is just going to continue to spiral and domino, correct? Yeah. And you think about even uh, if some people, they don't have the budget or the, you know, the market is not conducive to them getting a new abode with a spare room or someplace that they can easily set up uh, where people might have uh, simply just worked off their laptop before, you know, now they're actually thinking about uh, their, their, their actual setup, their ergonomics, you know, at home, they're getting a monitor stand, getting a stand for the laptop, uh, getting a chair where they can actually be at a proper, you know, seating angle, not hunched over in front of the laptop, uh, you know, you name it, a, a light, 
you know, for the multiple for displays. Purposes. It took it took the me a while. Multiple displays. To, to put, I had a second display, and I've got a third display up there. I don't want to tell you how many displays I'm looking at right now, but on my main work PC, I had to get used to a third display because I couldn't handle two anymore. It wasn't enough. Yeah, yeah. So I think the the nature of what people consider having enough to work with at home, uh, like before, it's just hey, you had your laptop on your lap or at your dinner table. And that's just not, uh, it just doesn't work anymore for doing it every day, hours and hours in a day. Uh, and, you know, to some degree, and I'm, I'm using one now, you know, virtual backgrounds have helped a little bit with people considering what rooms they can do uh, their, their work from. But even then, uh, all the noise and, and so on uh, taking place uh, where people might not have considered using something other than, hey, the earbuds that they have nearby, or hey, you know, the, the microphones on their laptop, uh, they actually now are considering, okay, maybe it's worth that extra $100, $150 for, uh, you know, some, some enterprise level, or actually that's not even, we'll get into that in a second, but, uh, you know, some, some cans or some you know, high-end earbuds or something that work better at cutting out background noise and pick up my voice better. Um, it, it, those things, those considerations weren't there before. And, you know, we see, we see that need and the obviously uh, companies wanting to make money off of addressing consumers' needs being reflected in how we're seeing uh, computing gear evolve, right? So we have uh, laptop manufacturers, you know, notoriously put horrible uh, front cameras, you know, so uh, front facing cameras in laptops where it was an afterthought, right? It was just something you had to have. And if it wasn't HD, no big deal. If it didn't perform well in low light, no big deal. Uh, if your microphones, you know, they're just there sort of uh, to help pick up some noise, but if they're not really, you know, set up for uh, noise canceling and, you know, uh, beam forming array, no big deal. No, that's not good enough anymore, right? So we see laptops coming out where you have uh, two and sometimes, you know, even more uh, microphone arrays and, uh, you know, there, there's beam forming going on and they're focused on voice clarity right, occluding outside noise as well. And you have, uh, even down to Chromebooks, you know, you see HD cameras and then better low light performance in the cameras built into the bezel of that laptop display becoming more of a standard thing because it's well, just been a point of focus now. It's even more than that in that um, this, this market, for lack of a, a better term, which is the, the high-end home user, that's now spending more time at home. The, the question becomes, since they've just about realized that the built-in stuff is not very good and they need to go up gear at some point, do they, you know, are they looking at the professional gear manufacturers for the higher quality things? Like, you know, I'm wearing my, my, my Voyager Focus headset, you know, it's the best on the market, you know, <laughs> or, and, and I'm, and I'm using a poly a P15 camera, of course, but the, but, but, you know, we're also starting to see some of the consumer companies starting to address this market and make their own. Well, you know what? We're going to build a camera into our display and, you know, right. we're going to give you a picture frame system. And th there's there's this recognition that it's no longer just build an iPhone and, and use the consumer demand for it to push it into the enterprise. Now it's, hey, you know what? We're going to be building products for this high-end home so people can up-level and go forward. Right. And you have... Uh... You know, if we look to just maybe two years ago, the pre-pandemic period, when you uh, were looking at earbuds, head headphones, you know, like full full cans uh, and everything else that, sure, they had a microphone in them, 
yeah, you could use them for calls. It wasn't necessarily focused, but you didn't need it to be, right? I mean, it just wasn't a concern for people who were buying those products and, you know, looking from the consumer survey side, I'll, I'll put in a plug, you know, Parks Associates has been in business 35 years, you know, surveying the the, the U.S. consumer market. And so we've got a lot of data there. Um, and, you know, those weren't uh, that high a buying consideration for people to, uh, before. But now you see things like how clear my voice comes across in calls, how good, you know, the microphone is at keeping, you know, barking dogs and ambient noise and whatever's going on in my household away from the transmit side, right? People on the other end of the call hearing it. Uh, those are actual considerations now. And you see the manufacturers building in uh, what used to be one microphone per earbud. Now it's three and it may be more going forward, you know, to do multiple things, right? Picking up your voice, occluding it from the outside, to doing active noise cancellation. Um, we see even, you know, accelerometers and so forth being used in earbuds now to, to perform bone conduction, right, under high noise circumstances. And that was something you just never, you never consider them being in earbuds before. And even, you know, cans where, you know, the considerations used to be that people bought cans because they wanted, at least on the consumer side, they wanted really high music sound quality, right? Or they wanted really high fidelity and they wanted passive noise cancellation. But even now, you know, that's not good enough. So you're getting cans that are doing active noise cancellation, noise cancellation, but also two, three, four microphones per side, right? To, to do the dual functions of cutting out, not just outside noise to the wearer, but outside, outside noise on transmit to the people on the other end of the call. And these were not considerations you had a couple of years ago. Uh, and they were not considerations that manufacturers ever reasonably thought that they would be addressing, right? I mean, because they're like, okay, well, why should I spend the cost to design this into the product? And on the other side, you know, we see a lot of companies that are in the space uh, traditionally on the uh, call center and, you know, productivity side and collaboration side, evolving the designs of their products for the consumer market as well. So, uh, besides poly, you know, and I have a piece of Plantronics gear on here as well, uh, actually pre pre pandemic uh, era gear, which is, uh, if you can't really see it too well, it's not really, uh, the coolest looking thing, but it works well. You see a lot of these companies designing now aesthetically textures, colors, et cetera, more, uh, even down to shape and design, right. You know, visual design and, and aesthetics. It has to be more than just something that works. It needs to be something that right. joins your lifestyle and makes things look and feel better. Consumer considerations, right? Or even home decor considerations, right? If you think about the uh, uh, some of the products that are out there for for tabletop speakerphone purposes and so on, uh, textures, you know, uh, fabric textures and colors that are more amenable to different, you know, like household lifestyles. Those are not considerations for the pro side either a few years ago, but now in this new blended style of working, they have to, they have to design it with consideration that it, it, yeah, it may go in a huddle room in an office or it may go into somebody's household in the room that they have, you know, is their, their little uh, impromptu meeting room for their startup or for, uh, for their own productivity purposes. And similarly, if you're designing earbuds, uh, you know, whether you're poly, Jabra or so forth, uh, you, you can't just make something that uh, goes in the ear. It looks pro. It has multiple microphones and it works well. No, you know, it's got to be a rounded design. You got to have it in multiple colors. It's got to be, uh, it's got to have all these consumer considerations, right? So 
it is interesting to see it affect both worlds. And I think that's the great contrast of everything right now, where you have all that expertise now kind of in a, in a Venn diagram where it's overlapping, right? You have people that were used to designing for consumer concerns now verging over into pro and you had the pro, now you have the pro side used to designing for uh, enterprise and, you know, pro level collaboration purposes now verging over to consumer considerations for what they do when they design their products. And, uh, you know, I think the consumer is better off for it, right? We get, we get better performing, better looking, better lifestyle compatible gear. Um, and in the end, you know, that, that middle ground there between the two, to me, it results in, in, uh, a better level of performance for the user, right? You're more comfortable wearing it because it fits better. Uh, you're more comfortable wearing it full time because you're not worried about what it looks like as you're commuting or as you're outside and you're conducting this call. Um, but also you are very secure wearing it all the time and you know using it and being confident in it because you know the microphone performs well. You know, it's not going to pick up the washing machine, you know, going, uh, going through a cycle in the other room. So I think it's good for the, the collective industry um, to, to come to kind of meet in the middle here because the nature of work today kind of combines both ends now. It combines both worlds. Let's, let's slide our focus a little bit from, uh, from home office and the home professional user to, 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 to more to you in, in, in your wheelhouse right now for the consumer side, for, for getting the home set up upgraded you know, during this pandemic, you know, we, we can talk, we'll, we'll come back to talking about, you know, cinemas and movie theaters, but, yep. you know, if, if, you know, a home theater 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago was a very high end, expensive, expensive chairs, large projection screen, all the other, you know, you know, control system in the room and home theater right. now is, you know, you run down to the Costco and get an 80 or 90 inch display <laughs> and, and, and a little Dolby soundbar that goes underneath it with a subwoofer and you're there. And it's yeah. not as expensive or unreachable as it used to be. And people are doing that, aren't they? Yes. And, you know, the thing is also larger screens. And, and it's outrageous how big the direct view screens have gotten these days. Uh, but the, you know, the the need for an elaborate setup, whether that was having to install of a high, you know, of a, of a high uh, reflective performance or high performance screen surface and a projector, and you had, you know, these discrete uh, AV receiver and uh, separate systems. And, you know, you took a lot of space to really realize a home theater. And we're now, you know, the, the complex thing is figuring out, okay, where you want to place everything? Uh, do you want a projector or do you want a really large, you know, uh, 80 plus inch, you know, TV? Okay, great. Do you want to do you want a soundbar? Do you want a soundbar with wireless rear speakers? Do you want a soundbar that's got Atmos in it? And so while the 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 nature of what you can just pick up and bolt on and, and bolt together is is never going to be as good as a really serious AV receiver based, you know, separate system of really high performance components. Uh, you know, a lot of people they they just the nature of consumers now, so many people are not really wanting to dedicate the space and the trouble uh, to, to really realizing that setup in their home, right? So they, they want, you know, a relatively uh, strong performing setup and, you know, to get better audio than what they're getting from their TV at a minimum, which is not a hard, you know, bar uh, to, to surmount these days. But, 
you know, what you can do today with a lot of the soundbars, especially now that they have uh, Atmos becoming more affordable, like up-firing speakers in the front, wireless rears that also have an up-firing speaker, uh, you can pull off quite a lot with what you can get just at your local Best Buy uh, or other retailer uh, in terms of getting a, a pretty decently sounding home theater setup. And it, and it won't have the depth or the oomph or the detail of a serious system. But on the other hand, you won't need to dedicate the amount of like floor space or placement consideration or mounting that you would have had to go through and figure out. And cost as well, typical right? setup and cost and cost. And so, uh, you know, it's not as bespoke a setup and it's not going to take as much to realize, uh, you know, a, a pretty solid amount of sound uh, as it would with a traditional type of, of uh, mentality now well with a, with a traditional type of configuration and mindset for what you would need and and if i'm you know the typical home user if i'm quoting the stats from uh, my, my friends at ces i'm subscribed to somewhere between four and eight um over the top services nowadays you know whether that's disney plus or netflix or or, or hbo max or all that i don't want to you know, leave anybody out or put anybody in but yeah. you know at this point when a, when a movie comes out it's a real consideration do I want to watch it at home or do I want to go to a theater? Now, going out with friends to a theater is always something that's fun to do from a social standpoint. But when you add in COVID and you add in the costs and you add in the inconvenience and you compare what my experience would be in a, in a dirty theater seat with $40 popcorn, um, uh, you know, watching in a, in a 17-plex theater that's in a mall as opposed to me sitting at home in my in my family room or my living room, with an 80 inch screen and Dolby and I can pause the movie whenever I want. I, I think we're at a point where, where, you know, the film industry is realizing and suffering that unless they've got a number one top blockbuster, the, the whole distribution chain around that's going to have to change. People will want to go to the theater for grandeur, not for a 17 plex. Right. Other than that, they're going to stay home. I mean, right. is that a trend you guys are reporting on and seeing as well? Yes. Uh, so first thing, uh, you know, Parks Associates research in the latest quarter, we see that uh, the U.S. broadband households, it, it's gone up. I think it's gone up from uh, 43 to 46 percent a couple quarters ago to now 49 percent of U.S. households have four or more streaming video subscriptions, right, to nearly half of all broadband households. And so the, the rate of consumption, I think, you know, subscription growth is starting to slow down a bit when it comes down to streaming video. And it, it had to, it couldn't go on forever at the pace it was it was making, but it's not going to go down, right? I mean, it's just elevated itself. Like I said, things have been accelerated because of the pandemic. And so the, the natural pace of what was happening simply got uh, quickened a bit, but it wasn't something that wasn't already happening. And so you have a lot of people consuming streaming video. Uh, you have obviously a creeping up of screen sizes that are available at retail and not just the screen size, but the screen size per dollar. Right. If you think about how much a 75 inch screen costs now compared to three, four years ago, it's outrageous how much that has dropped. And even 85 inch screens, um, they're actually price target for, you know, some consumers. So the markets change, affordability of the gear has changed. Um, but also when we look at the cinema, uh, because the nature of being able to watch entertainment has changed, it's no longer these windows where, you know, you might see it in the theater. Yeah, you could see it this weekend, but to wait for it a home video or a Blu-ray might take six months to a year, right? Or make two, two months, three months. No, you're likely not to see that that spacing or those type of release windows again. And 
you know, people are actually now considering that trade-off and they're, they're not going to the cinema as much for the same type of content or the same type of experience, right? So we see the cinema industry going more towards uh, experience-related cinema. So making more out of uh, two things, like making better use of that space that they already have towards, let's say, if, if it used to be a 17-plex, now it might be a 7 or 10-plex instead, where they're using it for more uh, marquee-type entertainment and the experience has been built out more seriously. Right. Have so you, you have seen, better sound system. Have you seen that as a trend that's starting to happen or are you just predicting that it will happen? Yeah, it's it's already happened or happening. You know, so you see reconfiguration where you get more premium experiences at the theater where it's better seats, better service, you know, expanded menus. Now there's alcohol in some theaters. Uh, you have phenomenal sound systems, you know, like higher quality projection or, you know, digital projection. And at some point, you know, uh, the, it, there's going to be a higher incidence of uh direct view led you know direct view screens in in, in cinemas so the the nature of what it means to go to the cinema and what it means to try and get people to come what experience you're giving them right what value equation you're proposing for them to come and spend 20 bucks on a ticket and to spend for you know more expensive food it's the experience and also on the content side you have a lot of these theaters repurposing and you know bringing people in for for viewing of, of concerts and games and other types of content things that can't be live. done easily at a home theater live the live entertainment right. or the, the actor or the director speaking about the film before or afterwards or a contest or something like that right so something more experiential right and then you know so it, especially let's say big sports games well, you don't want to go through the trouble of getting a ticket to go see it at the stadium or go deal with parking and stuff like that. But maybe you want to go see it in a bigger atmosphere than at home. And you want to be around, you know, people and, and a type of festival atmosphere. Or you want to go enjoy an arts performance live. Uh, but you don't want to go to New York to watch that performance, right? You want to watch it in a place where it's not your home, etc. So, you know, the, the nature of the content that they're carrying is starting to change. Uh, and the cinema experience is starting to change. But I think for people, you know, that value equation has also changed. What will they actually go to the cinema for? If they got pretty good sound at home, they've got a really big screen at home, you know, they got the comfort of being at home, then it, it takes more to get them to go to the, to the cinema, right? So it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be, well, the price is so high, right? I mean, even if we kept the price the same, the nature of what they can enjoy at home has been elevated. Right. So that the feeling that, ah, well, you know, this is just such a uh, this is such a diminished experience. You know, me watching at home on this little screen and through my TV's audio. Well, you, that's not necessarily the case anymore because you might have a soundbar. You might have a pretty good soundbar and subwoofer. Maybe you have a 5.1 system with a soundbar, maybe. But at a minimum, you probably have a much bigger screen than you did two or three years ago. Uh, a lot of people bought smart TVs during the pandemic or, you know, at least even post pandemic, they're still buying smart TVs, mm -hmm. big smart TVs. Um, it, it's just the nature of what you can do at home has changed. And so I don't know that the cinema industry is going to be the same ever again. And I don't necessarily think that's bad, right? I don't think it's going to disappear or go away, but I think the nature of what it means to, to show movies and what it means to have a movie theater, quote unquote, versus where we might see cinema being more the word that's being used rather than movie theater, because yeah. cinema is not necessarily bound to just movie content, right? And that's how the, the industry is changing, where it's just a place to really enjoy content at a big scale 
and there could be movies, there could be live performances, it could be live sports, you know, we, we will see. Um, but gone are the old cheap seats of, of you know, the, the old cheap seats of legacy, you know, experiences where it's fabric and it had gum and, you know, maybe somebody else's uh, Coke was spilled onto it from, you know, the last viewer and you had sticky floors and, you know, you were lucky to get popcorn and soft drinks. No, you know, it's an elevated experience we can expect going forward from cinemas too. So it's uh, not all change is bad. I think it's been a disruptive time for the film industry, but they're, they're innovating very, very hard to stay alive. And I think the consumer benefits from that. It's a good change. It's I'm glad that it's happening. So, so two more topics I want to cover before we wrap this up today. The first one I think is really important that we focus on just for a second is what's going on with gaming. Um, ah, yes. And, 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 and I think, you know, you, you can look at this from a number of different angles. You can look at it from the, the big M&A that's happened, you know, recently in the industry where, you know, uh, uh, Microsoft is buying and everybody, you know, a lot of companies are buying other companies up. You can also look at it from the perspective, you know, on our, on our smart devices, our smartphones, we used to be able to go to an app store and, and, and microtransaction, purchase a game and play it. Um, and, and that, for the most part, is kind of moving away because they're trying to build in games that you have to subscribe to because they're looking for that recurring revenue stream. Right. So whether it's a game that's got microtransactions built into it or the only way you access the game is by the monthly subscription to the platform, it looks like most of the technology platform companies are really trying to move toward this gaming as, as a recurring revenue stream. Is that a trend that your research kind of uh, shows and holds up? Uh, I think we're not necessarily seeing it in the consumer survey side, uh, but I think, you know, we were definitely seeing it as we observe what's going on in the gaming industry, uh, that that is the, the nature of where the business is moving to. And, you know, I think it's it's not just uh, from a lot of these big uh, ecosystem companies, you know, like your Microsofts and, uh, and Sony and, you know, Netflix is getting into gaming. Uh, I, I think it's also because you see the gaming companies themselves looking at, uh, that short-term transactional revenue, that one-time transactional revenue versus the prospect of recurring revenue. And, you know, both look good, right? And maybe you, you get people to come in with an initial transaction or or not, but long-term, it's more stable of a, of a revenue stream and revenue structure for your company to have that committed long-term recurring revenue. And so, you know, I think the, the preferred well, as you mentioned, there's basically two two preferred tracks to this, right? One is either a subscription for access uh, to the gaming experience, right? I mean, if they don't, if they're not a member, they can't play. Uh, or and or number two, microtransactions with it, right? To DLC, like so, downloadable content and you know content packs and add-ons and additional uh, missions and you know maps and so on. And that's certainly. Uh, been around quite a while and gamers are used to that dynamic and now you know that it's being more uh it's being made into a more realized revenue source uh you know i i don't expect that it's going to go away you know gamers have, have generally complied with this pretty well and they're going to continue to do so because they they feel that they're receiving substantive value right extra missions extra characters extra weapons uh, now, what that is worth uh, dollar-wise, you know, if it keeps escalating, then there might be some, there might be some backlash. But I think we can expect this to to continue going forward, and uh, at least for the gaming companies, I mean, there's there might be, and we'll see what you know what you think about this, David. I think between the the Fortnite and Epic Games, you know, affair and, and Apple, you know, who then owns that revenue? 
right? Should it be the people that make the hardware or the, the operating system upon which that gaming is taking place, you know? So uh, Apple, right? Should they be the gatekeeper for, uh, for, that, uh, for that transaction? Or can that transaction, you know, should it rightfully be the ownership of uh, who created the, the transactional experience within their particular app or game that happens to be played on that device or on that platform, right? Or on that device platform, I should say. So it's, uh, you know, I don't know. It's a snake eating its tail, you know, where do, where do you really get into this argument? Because uh, who owns that experience? And I don't know that I have an answer for that, but I think it's an interesting battle to see as it's, you know, change is taking place and how we're monetizing gaming. And uh, I'm very curious to see how it ultimately settles. I'm not just with Apple and Epic. Nah, I mean, beyond that, looking over the next five years. They're certainly all very invested in it because they see there's a lot of cash to be made in the process. Yes, yes. And, you know, you you see all of the major, if, if you think about uh, what's happened in the last five years, all of the major cloud computing giants uh, in this uh, on this planet, well, including those in China, they're all invested in cloud gaming now, right? I mean, they... they they are not just heavily committed to gaming, but they're they're heavily committed to ha- trying to monetize gaming long term, right? Because they're all losing money when it comes to cloud gaming at this moment. Uh, they're all committed to making money off of gaming on multiple platforms, right? Finding a way to make it stick on whether it's a platform, or I'm sorry, whether it's a smartphone, it's a tablet, it's a game console, what have you. They don't necessarily want to be bound to one type of hardware for you to consume gaming content yep. on. And, you know, they've already made the investments on the cloud side, right? So Amazon, Microsoft, Google. Uh, so they, they're trying to better leverage that investment in ways that, uh, you know, less capable companies aren't able to do, right? Where they're constrained right. to being a console player. Or they're constrained to being in one place. And, uh, you know, we see Sony attempting to, to pivot very hard now with whatever upcoming revision they have to their, their services model and their cloud gaming model to try and compete with, you know, uh, Xbox, you know, and uh, their, particular, their particular subscription service, quote unquote, Netflix of gaming, Xbox Game, Xbox game Pass that combines uh, cloud gaming with the subscription and now Netflix getting into gaming. Uh, so it's, it's a very interesting picture as a lot of companies look at gaming as the next dimension of entertainment, right? Not just filmed entertainment, sure. uh, but entertainment to, to basically make into a revenue stream. Entertainment, gaming, esports. It's a big battlefield going on over there with all of that stuff. All right. Huge. And last, last topic for you for, to get your input. I'll, I'll pull out one of my, um, here's a little avatar, um, <laughs> you know, from, from my, my Bloomberg days. Okay, well let's 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 talk metaverse just for a second. Yes. You know, it was it was probably the most hyped, biggest BS word uh, that came out of CES this year because everybody was claiming to have it. Nobody really had it. Nobody really understands it, um, and nobody has any pants. You know, if you ever look at any of the icons and any of the things online, the VR, you know, it's, it's they're all, all shirts, no pants. Right. But anyway, what what's you know, it's unfair to ask you for a quick answer to something that's that complicated. But give us your your brief take on what's going on in metaverse and what people should be paying attention to today versus waiting on and uh, and letting uh, letting develop before they look at it very hard. I, you know, I I can't give you a quick answer, but it's probably because I've, I'm the first to tell you that I. I think I'm a bit ignorant when it comes to the metaverse, at least the complete scope of it and what it means uh, for for the business world, what it means for the entertainment world. Um, you know, I, I think that it's still the Wild West, really, 
you know, what does it mean to have a representation of your brand within the metaverse and who controls the real estate or the world that you're in? And, and you know, are you in uh, contextually, where are you located? Are you located in the right place within the metaverse for people to find you, right? If you're a business, if you're a brand, um, it, it's really hard to define. And I think because it's so new, uh, the, the time is good if, if you're a Facebook meta, right? Not Facebook anymore. Uh, if you're one of these huge stakeholders, okay, in, in the metaverse, um, and in technologies that are related to the metaverse, right? Whether that's AR, VR, what have you. Uh, because there is, it's such an early and nascent period, it gives opportunity for a lot of these companies to create the standards, to create the norms, to create the dynamics, uh, and, and to help crystallize them into what becomes the standards uh, within the metaverse uh, over time. So I think it's a good time for them. I think it's a, it's a, bit of a nascent time if you're thinking about getting into the metaverse um, and you're thinking about making an investment to really you know have a representation in the metaverse i'm not trying to discourage it but i would say that it it's a it's a nascent time to be getting into it uh because it's so new but it is exciting uh, i like the is, wild west uh, uh expression of it a little bit better because that's a little truer also a little bit of wag the dog in there people are saying whatever they want to say to up the who game makes the, the rules the people with the guns make the rules you know yeah. so that's that's uh, that's not the right analogy but it is it is in similar spirit where you know there's the wild west so the people you know making a lot of the foundational pieces the foundational fabric of what we see and experience in the metaverse uh, a lot of those stakeholders, they have the ability now to, to set some of the norms and, and govern what will become uh, the standards going forward. So, And ultimately, what will or will not be more of this blurring, be more of what's going to be in an enterprise versus a consumer, you know, and, uh, and, and what people will be uh, doing with, uh, with, with, with whatever the next generation of online experience is. Right. And I think that uh, we'll see if you agree with this, this level of stretch for an analogy here. But I think if, if you think about, uh, I won't say older folks, but if you think about uh, wiser men of a certain age, you know, wiser folks. Uh, digital immigrants, uh, that have had to, as yes. opposed to digital natives, digital immigrants. Yeah, so if you think about people that generationally are much younger, getting into the technology scene or enterprise, or even just society, let's forget about the lines between consumer and enterprise. You know, they, they don't really have the idea of those lines that we may have had because we, you know, we're decades older, right? Or gener we come from later uh, generations and, uh, or earlier generations, let me get that right. So for them, you know, the, the lines between pro and enterprise, they may not be ever be the same. They may not be that line, you know, two generations from now, or even, you know, one generation from now where it's all sort of a blended reality, right? You just happen to do business while you're at home versus you're watching entertainment while you're at home, but they all take place at home, right? There isn't really a, a enterprise world, uh, at least in, maybe in terms of the level of business you're doing, but in terms of the traditional idea of it takes place and it's a lot of office buildings, you know, across an international footprint, I don't think that's going to be the same ever again, because right now it is an international footprint. We're all connected via the internet, right? We're all conducting business over the internet, over, uh, you know, a, a video call client. Uh, it's still enterprise business. It's just not taking place in enterprise digs. So I think for, for a lot of the newer generations, um, 
you know, there's not going to be that same consideration, maybe even in the metaverse, you know, what's uh, what's a storefront versus, you know, what's a personal storefront versus a corporate storefront. Uh, maybe they both have really cool logos on them, right? Or maybe they have really great slogans on the outside, or maybe they're very well decorated storefronts in the metaverse. Uh, or all but, restaurants are Taco Bells, if you want to go back to the, <laughs> to the demolition. An analogy. Yeah. So, so it's anyway, it's, it's getting, I'm getting off the rails there, but I think it's just, it's hard to define, you know, what the norms are going to be in the metaverse. And it is because it's so new, but I think it is also great uh, to, to have the years of experience that each of us do and to be able to see a lot of change taking place, right. And to kind of remark on how fundamental it is compared to, you know, even just a few years ago. And of course, getting back to, to some of the, the grounding of this episode, uh, how so much of that that was already in motion has been drop kicked into high gear over the last two years because of the pandemic, you know? So we've gotten, I wouldn't even say it's, uh, you know, two years and two months, I'd say it's, you know, five to eight years within two years worth of progress, yep. easily, easily. Yep. We all need to fasten our seatbelts because it's not going to get any slower anytime soon. No, no, Paul, it's, it's not. Great insights from you. I appreciate it. If somebody wants to reach out to you or find out more about what you do, how can they get in touch with you? Well, yeah. So, you know, you can uh, get a hold of me on Twitter, of course, uh, Paul Erickson AV on Twitter. And also I'm with uh, Parks Associates at parksassociates.com. Uh, and if you have a question, you can always email me at paul.erickson at parksassociates.com. Well, thanks very much for being my guest on this episode. All thanks of you, thank you me. for joining us uh, today on uh, episode 44 of Connected. We're coming up on 50 pretty soon. I'm going to have to do something special for that. So for AV Nation TV, for the IMCCA, for all the organizations I'm with, I'm David Danto. If you want to reach out to me, as I always say, Google me. There's only two of them, and I'm the one who's not the, uh, the, the guy in Canada. Um, a pleasure uh, hosting you for this one, and we'll see you on the next show.